Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hey, what's happening, Archons? Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, also known as Alex, and I am joined this week, as with every week, by the man who makes it all happen. It's my coach, Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Blake? Yo, what's going on, man? Not too much, not too much at all. Excited for us to get into it this week. Kind of a mixed bag episode. We had a sort of an, one mini topic that we kind of wanted to address off the top, then going to do some classic segments. You know, get in, get out, do a little help from future self, uh, wing ding dangle. Are you ready for this? Oh, yeah, man. I, I'm ready for this also. Uh, starting things off, I had this idea that I kind of wanted to throw out there. Um, just because you and I have had a lot of conversations about buying aftermarket decks on the podcast recently. Um, and we realized that's a kind of difficult subject for a lot of folks to understand just because they may not have ever purchased a deck secondhand on the secondhand market. And so, you know, because there's really no way to actually evaluate a deck beyond what you're willing to spend, I, I thought it'd be interesting for us to take like just two or three minutes off the top of the show to talk about that. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So I guess the the, the one weird thing that I've always been able to use as a metric was the, if I opened a box and this was the only deck in it that was awesome, would I be happy about that? Or would I be disappointed about that? And that sort of at least gives you a place to start in terms of evaluating a deck because we know what a box costs. We know what a box from each set costs now on the market. So, you know, uh, if I was to open up a box of MM and it cost, uh, you know, whatever it costs to buy a box of that right now, 160 bucks in Canada, you know, and there was a killer deck inside of it that I really love and really wanted to play, then that deck has a value potentially of up to $160 for me. That's kind of the way that I've been looking at it. I don't frequently ever spend that much on decks, but at least I can justify cost around that based on that figure. That's really interesting. Yeah, I've never thought of it that way because there are other decks and there's definitely more mid-tier decks, I think, in every box than there are the really good ones. Mm -hmm. I know uh, my man Scrowner actually just sent me a message about this the other day talking about how his he finds all his best decks he have he has and has opened are or not even open that he has are a result of buying them on the secondary market and he said he bought a bunch of boxes of mm and they were all very underwhelming they didn't have anything truly spicy and he just ended up getting what he was looking for through dok and facebook groups ebay all that sort of thing because of the fact that opening boxes even though he he opened i would say a above average amount of boxes nothing crazy but mm -hmm. definitely more than i think the average person would and he was very disappointed with the the pulse he said and as a result he now leans more towards the secondary market as a result because of that and i think that is a trend we may see more but there's always the collector and the mystique, as we've mentioned, that that has the alluring factor of cracking packs and seeing what's inside. Yeah, the cracking pack thing is huge for me. I'm never going to get away from that entirely. Mm -hmm. But I am going to say this straight up, Blake. Like, my two best decks, my two favorite decks are both secondary market decks. One of them I mm -hmm. got for a smoking good deal on eBay. It was like $20 uh, Canadian plus shipping from Quebec. And it is an absolutely killer deck. That's my store champs deck. The other one I bought off DOK for, I think, $70 
um, and is once again just an absolutely powerful, awesome, good deck. You've played against it a number of times. My my mm-hmm. my first Quixel deck, um, and both of those I think were you know one of them was an amazing deal, and one of them was well worth probably more than the money. But it's a really tough thing to think about, just because sometimes you and I see decks that are priced you know in the the hundreds and even up to into the thousands on DOK. And the question in my mind is, how could it be worth that much at a time? when there is no organized play, no vault tournaments to take them to. And I guess that sort of gets into the question of like, are there Keyforge whales out there, Blake? People who are willing to spend big money just so that they can have the absolute best deck on DOK? Uh, I don't know if I would phrase it that way. I think there's people who understand the value of a deck and maybe see the way it does things and it fits a style of play and is efficient or it has really cool combos that is very rare and they can do research to the point where how many decks have these combination of cards that actually really make this deck hum in existence. And if that's a really low number, then they know that this one has more value because of the rarity of the combination in general. Because obviously you're not going to be able to replicate two decks, but you're going to have that ability to see what else exists through DOK that has those those components that make it so strong so it creates this rarity and this opportunity it's not like in other games where you can just have to pay the money for the cards and you can build it like this is the only one that exists and if you don't take this opportunity to capitalize on that then you miss out on it because there is only one yeah yeah and you know you do see sometimes people come with like hot offers sometimes uh, because they see a deck that they like. I've had that happen many times where I've been playing on the Crucible and people ask if the deck I'm playing is for sale. I know you've had the same thing happen to you too. And sometimes people can be very aggressive with that pricing just because they spend a lot of time on the game and I guess it's a thing that they're willing to invest in. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a weird market because we have no real good because of, like you can price a card in another game because you know there's a marketplace and an established marketplace and multiple dealers that all sell and they can compete and see each other's prices and you know there's a, a supply and demand uh for those things but because of the way keyforge works every deck is unique which means that there's no standardized way to price anything so it very much always is the what are you willing to pay or what are you willing to let something go for Hundred percent. And one thing I will say about this is that there there is a caveat to all this. And I saw someone do a tweet about this, where like if if you're new to the game and you see some some decks on eBay, I find this is more of a thing than anywhere else, where people will put a deck that is kind of garbage, but it has a pretty like semi high SAS score and just kind of talk big about it, and it actually is nothing special. It's just got a high SAS because, you know, things fall through the cracks of SAS on both sides in terms of some seem really highly rated, but the actual deck is pretty garbage. Mm-hmm. And there's other sides where things are quite quite lowly rated, but they actually put in a lot of work and are very strong. And it's these ones that fall into the higher level just because the cards themselves are have a high rating. So therefore it makes the SAS have a high rating. But when you actually start playing it, the deck just like it doesn't do anything. But you can start citing these cards like, oh, it has this and this and this. But the problem is, is those things don't work together. And then you have the high score to to back up the talk. And so I just saw someone saying you need to be careful if you're a new player going on to like those types of sites. Like you need to kind of get into groups and find people who are playing the game who can kind of guide you. Because some people are looking to to capitalize on the... I guess the inexperience of players understanding and they're kind of relying on maybe the fact that has a high score 
and a high dollar value that it must be a good deck. Mm-hmm. And that's not always the case. Yeah, very, very true. Um, don't be afraid to play test decks that you're thinking about buying. Never be afraid. And if somebody won't give you like the opportunity to do that, then I wouldn't generally speaking, recommend buying it unless it's something truly exceptional, unique, or special. Um, mm-hmm. Would you believe right now, Blake, that there is a horseman deck, a okay, like not incredible, but you know, not bad horseman deck on eBay with an asking price of 329 US dollars? No one surprised me at all. That In a way that makes sense because the ability to get horseman decks is becoming more and more rare because now uh, code is not being printed anymore. Mm-hmm. And for all we know, this person has had this horseman deck for a very long time when horseman was, you know, the original chase deck. It was the, the one that people went crazy for. It's where we saw decks get stupid amounts of money thrown at them was existed in this capacity. Mm-hmm. And what do you know? Like people probably still have those decks as a result. And now they're just trying to like, I bet you that deck was a thousand dollars at one point. And now it's come <laughs> down because of the situation. Yeah, quite probably, quite probably. Let's move on. Been a little while since we played this game. It's a little something we like to call Would You Rather Blake. All things being equal in a mass mutation deck with the House Sanctum in it, would you rather have Scrivener Favian or Master of the Grey? Oh, man, like I, I was convinced that my my response was going to be Scrivener Favian, and then you had to drop that Master right. of the Grey. So let's put it out there for the folks. If you're not familiar with these cards, Scrivener Favian, three-power creature, mutant in House Sanctum, enhance two capture pips. When you resolve a capture pip bonus icon, you may choose to steal one instead. So really amping up the value of that capture pip. Master of the Grey, on the other hand, four power, one armor. Your opponent cannot resolve bonus icons on cards they play. I know you have two decks that uh, individually each use these cards like very, very well. What what are your thoughts around this, B? All right, so I've come to my decision. I'm going with Master of the Grey. Reasoning is Master of the Grey is going to put in work every time. It becomes a target, so it distracts from other things you can have going on. And the ability to shut down people's usage of the bonus icons in all capacities is very potent i love scrivenger favian like like please don't get me wrong this is this is definitely one of the tougher ones but the reason why i think favian loses this battle is because if you don't have a lot of capture icons it loses its potency and plus you need favian to be out when you get into those cards that have the capture icons so therefore it requires a little bit more setup where master the gray hits the board does its thing and that's the end of it. Yeah, I, I got to agree with you. Favian in the right deck can be absolutely backbreaking. Um, and there's a lot of potential for you drop Favian and then start dropping cards that have the capture icon on them uh, and doing the steals. I've seen a lot of decks that really make advantage of that. But just in general, Master of the Grey is such a pain to deal with. For one thing, it's a hard card to get off the table, like even just as a general, you know, without putting any behind taunt or anything like that. And there's so many ways to protect it in Sanctum. And like... Because Mass Mutation, one of its huge things is bonus icons, there are so many games I've played where somebody drops Master of the Grey and I don't have an immediate way to deal with it, and suddenly I'm losing out on Amber, card draw, damage pips, anything that I might otherwise be crucial to my game plan for for getting ahead. You know, my absolute favorite Mass Mutation deck needs to be able to do card draw in order for its game plan to come into play. And so anytime I play against Master of the Grey, it is my absolute number one target for removal. I could not pick, I don't think, almost any other card in Sanctum over it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the, those are very good points. Like you can't, you cannot, like it's, it just shuts things down. It's and it's quite wild how it does it. And like, I have my Quixelstone deck I bought has a master of the gray. And that was one of the things I was the most excited about mm-hmm. was like to have Quixelstone and then master of the gray out. And you suddenly now cannot use the efficiency of all. Well, it's fine. I just won't play my creatures. I'll just play out my cards and gain Ember doing those things. And you suddenly stop that on top of the inability to play creatures, I think is like one of the coolest things about that deck is the possibility of abusing those two cards together. Mm-hmm, totally. Quick, quick bonus. Would you rather master of the gray or barrister Joya? Barrister Joya, five power, one armor. Enemy creatures cannot reap. Um, I honestly fear barrister Joya more because, especially in the mass mutation set, where a board is more relevant and using the board to reap is a much more of a thing that you see. I think the barrister is is a, such a pain in the ass. Like not being able to reap, it's never mind about the ember. There's just so many creatures that require the reapability to do the effect that comes from it that is very potent and it just shuts it down. So I'd have to say, I think Barrister actually is a lot worse because of the fact that you're not gaining ember, you're not getting to utilize effects that come from reaping, and it's a 5 1. So if you get that behind a taunt, it is absolutely like just awful to deal with Mm -hmm, totally true that's uh the the only argument against that i could think of is all right well if you put barrister joy and i can't reap then there's nothing to stop me from throwing all my guys into your battle line trying to take out joya but i mean that's a pyrrhic victory when i actually do take her down so yeah i probably (laughs) barrister joy is tough to deal with for sure yeah for sure there's without a doubt it's it's insane all right, uh, we're going to do over-under. We haven't do, done over-under in a while. We haven't done one since the set came out. So before a set comes out, when we play over-under, we take sort of a guess at whether a card's going to overperform or underperform. And then after a set's out, we talk about whether or not a card has overperformed based on our expert expectations or underperformed based on our expectations. We each picked three cards. Um, why don't you start us off and tell us whether a card over or underperformed based on your expectations from Mass Mutation, Blake? All right. So to start things off, I'm going to, since we were talking about Sanctum, why don't I just stay here? And the first card I have is Font of the Eye. So Font of the Eye is an artifact with an Omni ability that says if an enemy creature was destroyed this turn, a friendly creature captures one. For me, this card was way over. I never really appreciated the value that this was going to give because it's turn after turn. You can pretty much always capture one. And if you have Sanctum, most likely, you have the ability. Like I feel like Sanctum and Dis, those two houses uh, with this containing Font of the Eye, makes it really easy for you to make this work every turn. And it's just such a great way to just take one off. And I found it really is just such a potent card for ember control that i i really overlooked and then when i started using it i was just shocked at how much work it did put in font of the eye rules multiple fonts of the eye can be absolutely crippling yes so you know you take out one creature with one of your like hot uh combat ready uh sanctum creatures and then or you know any creature because the omni effect and gosh darn Mm -hmm. like you know you know any kind of removal um drop a board clear then drop you know one of your creatures then you know use the fonts of the eye there's so many ways that you can use it and it can capture so much this truly is the capture set yeah it is more so than than worlds collide uh agreed with you on a big overperformer. uh let me hit you with one of my own the card is called boro 
It's an action in House Shadows. It lets you take an opponent's artifact, and that artifact becomes yours, and that artifact becomes part of House Shadows. This is, to me now, I think the best artifact control of the game. Now, here's its weakness. It doesn't have a, you know any effect on global effect cards that might be giving you trouble. So if you're playing against a Quixelstone deck, Boro's not going to do anything against it. If you're playing against, you know, uh, uh, any kind of deck that has a global effect that could that could bone you, like Peace Accord or something like that, it's not going to deal with that for you. But otherwise, it is the artifact stealing, and that has such a huge effect because there's so many good artifacts in Mass Mutation. Um, at the time, I thought this was going to be a pretty good artifact control, and now I realize not only is it great artifact control, it can be a deck crippler because there's so many decks that rely on their auto encoder that rely on, you know, other cards like that in order to dark know, Amber vault is, a, yeah, is dark like Amber vault. whenever I'm playing that, I'm, I actually fear that card above all else. Mm -hmm. I've seen people throw out that like discard the dark Amber vault rather than see it get borrowed at some point. And I think mm -hmm. I even use this as a, as a help from future self on a previous episode. When you see your opponent has borrow, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when. So huge mm -hmm. overperformer, great card. I hope that they make this a staple in shadows. Yeah, I really like it too. What's your next one? Uh, my next one is a Causal Loop. So originally, I thought this card was going to be amazing. It's a Logos action card that has the play effect of Archive a Card, Archive Causal Loop. Unfortunately, this has definitely been an underperformer for me. It's great the one turn you get it, but then whenever you pull your archives, you're almost always pulling this Logos card and another house. So it's, it's kind of, it's like you're... You're, you're putting one card away now to be handicapped later. Mm -hmm. So it is cool in that way, but I find it ends up becoming a pain in the ass when everything's all said and done. The only saving grace for it is you have cards like, um, not Outer Encoder, but like Novu Dynamo. So when you need to discard something from your archives, it's really nice to have that just sitting there and you can get that to go for you. Or even Munchling. I find it's it's cool in that capacity, and then you clean it up. But I don't want to keep pulling it over and over again. And I found it becomes just more of a burden rather than a boon. And you need some other pieces to to basically get rid of it because it just starts becoming a hand clogger, and it has more of a handicapped, I think, than a uh, a power move. So I'll it was an you, under for me. The one thing that makes me love that card is when you get an enhancement on it. Um, yes, that is true. So I have one that has a card draw. And so any Logos turn, I always want to be doing it. And even if it's just I pull my archive, I put Causal Loop and the card that I originally archived with Causal Loop back in that I'm saving for later, and I'm getting a card draw out of it, big value and nice, fast deck cycling. But you're right. I actually think that most of the time, Causal Loop doesn't actually give you the huge advantage that you expect that it would because it has that problem that a lot of those classic recursion cards like bad penny and um who's that cyborg fella in uh, dexter in dexter you know where it's just oh my god i'm sick of seeing this guy and he's keeping me from seeing other cards mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's hard the other thing is like if you have an auto encoder you can just discard it and get the archiving effect anyway so that's one thing but yeah i find it's on its own it's not good but it has some utility if you get some other pieces that can that can help you deal with the fact that it keeps recurring and you don't want that so that's that's an interesting side of it but i think it underperforms by itself mm -hmm. how about Agreed. you what's your uh, next one all right my next one is commune lose all your amber gain four amber omega action in house untamed huge underperformer for me blake um 
at first my thought was, wow, this is an amazing turn one card. And it is. But I almost never get this thing to go off. And I have it in so many decks. And almost every single time, all it leads to is me going, well, this is actually limiting my potential gameplay because I don't want to go above four amber and lose amber. So it's making me do suboptimal untamed turns because there's still like a decent amount of burst and untame in this set so that I can get this card off. And half the time I end up just discarding it because I'm like, this isn't worth it and I don't want it chaining up my hand. You know, if you can archive it, sometimes it can be like a hot play where it's like, okay, you know, I clear the board or I do some fights or do some other stuff and here's a little bonus amber for me at the end of the turn. I lose two and I get four at the end of it. But most of the time I find it's just sitting there like taunting me because I have five amber or seven amber or more than that even in some cases and i'm stuck there looking at commune going when am i going to get to use this fucking card pardon my language <laughs> you don't swear often on here so this lets everyone know how much this triggers you yeah, oh, no, i enjoyed I, that I, I, I had a thing today where i had two of them in my hand and i had nine amber <laughs> and i was so choked <laughs> I'm I'm with you. I think I think it's after turn one, its value definitely diminishes greatly. Or if you happen to draw it after you forge a key, it then has value. But aside from that, you're right. It's it's one of the best turn one plays, I think, to just get you off to the races. But unfortunately, beyond that, it's literally just this card you have to basically decide, am I gonna really discard this? I find you know what's the weird thing is I found more often than not, it's gaining one ember. Hmm. But it's I'm with you. It's it's it is kind of useless. You definitely don't want more than one in a deck. Hundred percent. One is more than enough. Yeah, absolutely. What's your third card, B? So my third card is Implosion, which I I honestly originally thought this card was going to be like I was like yeah it's a removal, but you have to get rid of one of your own creatures, and I didn't truly appreciate at the start of Mass Mutations looking at spoilers and whatnot the greatness that exists especially in house dees of destroy triggers and what they can do and having the ability to just like if you have no creatures and it's a straight just removal card and if you do have some creatures there's there's a great like imp specter i'm i'm sorry to have to say like imp specter last set i didn't think much of this set i don't know why i find imp specter so much more potent Mm -hmm. i don't know if you've noticed this yeah no i mean just those those purges are so huge yeah, I find it like Imp Spectre puts in work. Like I want to see that card. I find it it creates a conundrum because it's a matter of, like when you put it on the table, it kind of creates this like psychological warfare. It's like, oh my goodness, I don't want this card purged from my hand. Like I'm saving up for something. Like it creates this this effect and implosion with it is just it's a straight removal. It removes anything. There's no condition other than you might have to destroy one of your own creatures. That's the only condition. And when there's big threats out there, like we're talking, the Master of the Greys, you have the a Lord Invidious out there. You may even get some of the Sins uh, or something like um, the Z-Force agent. When that goes out and it has all these freaking like upgrades on it, and you're just like, okay, just got the one that gives an extra three power, it just becomes just dominant and this just is doesn't matter how big your creature is oh not what am i thinking obviously you have the gigantic creatures too and that doesn't care like what those creatures how big they are it's just a straight you just remove it off the board it's it's such an overperformer for me 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. All those destroyed triggers, all those different ways that you can use it so that destroying your own creature actually gives you an advantage. Uh, yeah, it, it's fantastic. I really like it as removal, and I hope that it sticks around in future sets. Mm-hmm. What's your right. last one? Let me hit you with the last one. A little last-minute substitution. I was originally going to talk a little bit about Z-Force Agent, but then I realized that Z-Force Agent is a card that I haven't spent enough time with to really say my opinion, whether it over or underperformed. Sneak preview, I was actually going to talk a little bit about how the Z-Force decks that I've played have underperformed for me, um, but I actually decided that I wanted to talk about an overperformer because it's one that I don't think, even though it's kind of obvious on its face, how good it is that I realized how amazing it was. Um, and it's amazing because it pairs up with two very common cards in this set in House Shadows. It's Safe House. It's a location in uh, Shadows. One pip of amber for playing it. Action, archive a friendly creature from play. Pretty cool, pretty useful. Now add in Rad Penny and Bonithing, and this thing is awesome. So... If you're not familiar with Rad Penny, it's very simple and straightforward. Play, steal one. Destroyed, shuffle Rad Penny into your deck. Instead of stealing it, you just pick up that Rad Penny, put it back into your uh, uh, archive. Then you can drop it again next turn or whenever you feel like it. Same with Bone Nithing. Having to deal with Bone Nithing and Safe House in the final key of the game is such a huge pain because it's basically a guarantee that your opponent can take you off by two amber every single turn if they want to. Have you encountered decks that make good use of this? Not in that capacity that you just mentioned, but I've I've experienced it before playing decks. And so not in my main decks, but when I was opening stuff and testing, yeah, I did notice like the the bone nithing, even rad penny sometimes as well. But the bone nithing one is particularly potent and really disgusting. It suddenly makes bone nithing a creature that when it hits the board, you you for all intents and purposes ignore it once it's on the board. It doesn't really matter that much and suddenly becomes, I need to get this thing out of here. This is getting so annoying. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I ultimately think that it's not an incredible card when it's away from those two. Like, if you pull this in a card that doesn't have, like, a couple of bone things or a couple of rad pennies or even one of each, then it's just like, well, you know, I'm, I'm picking up my Johnny Longfingers or my Liam Say or something like that. And usually that's not a huge advantage. There's not a ton of great play effects in House Shadows. But with those ones, it's absolutely phenomenal. I think it overperforms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right. Can't end an episode of Help from Future Self without the titular segment. This one's called Help from Future Self. Got one for you this week. Um, We all know that Mass Mutation is the big board set. Um, Huge, huge board states. Very, very important. My lesson to you, then, is one that I've been trying to keep in mind, is do not fear the board clear. Um, Even if you've got a more established board than your opponent, and they put down three creatures, and you're looking at them going, well, I've got six creatures, and they've only got three, but those three creatures are going to make your life difficult, sometimes it's okay to just throw everything that you have away and start over from scratch, because you know that without doing that, you're going to have a hard time dealing with what they have going on. I'm thinking of cases where people have uh, cards that are protected behind uh, uh, taunts. I'm thinking of cases where sometimes somebody puts down, like, say, uh, a card that has a good steal ability, like Restless Rizzo against a shoulder hit or something like that, or have, uh, like, somebody set up in the center of their battle line, one of the leaders. Um, Even if they're starting to get things rolling with a Dark Amber Vault, sometimes you just have to say, okay, it's worth it for me to get rid of you know, twice as many creatures as my opponent is going to lose 
just so that I'm not taken advantage of and so that I can set their game plan back. Of course, this is deck dependent. If you've got all your like big money pieces out on the table and your opponent's starting to get their big money pieces out on the table, you're going to have to weigh whether or not it's worth throwing away your game plan and starting over from scratch. But I find that I've been getting more nervous about doing board clears when I have a good established board state and I'm trying to break myself of the habit because I think sometimes you just have to. You have to make those sacrifices in order to not get blown out, especially if you can see what your opponent's game plan is and you know that they're getting it set up. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it's 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 a tough it's a tough decision, but it, you sometimes got to make those tough calls in this game. Mm-hmm, absolutely. All right, you can find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. You can find me at Scuzzy Gruen on the Crucible on Instagram and on Twitter. Haven't been very active on there recently. Hoping to get back to it a little bit with some hot KeyForge takes. What do you got going on, Blake? Well, this week, um, I'm sure people notice I did not stream this week or release my weekly KeyForge vlog the key thoughts uh that's basically because i was moving and i did not have anything set up to do any of that sort of thing so next week i should be back at it and not to mention that my streaming night was also election night so that felt like just a fool's errand (laughs) so um yeah i didn't do anything this week but you can always find me on twitter at boulevard paper fight and my youtube boulevard paper fight and of course on twitch boulevard blake all righty we're going to be back at you next week with more uh keyforge chatter our favorite game really looking forward to it thank you so much for listening until then stay forward.